Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 14. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as, as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, let us do so with a few moments of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we have your word and that it is ubiquitous in our lives. We hear it on the radio. We see it written on signs. We each have our own copies on our shelves. And yet, Lord, we need your spirit to make it alive to us. To give us the grace to receive it. To be comforted, to be convicted, to be taught, to be changed. Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us today as we look at your word together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've made our way to Psalm 14 in our summer in the Psalms, and this will be our last week in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 14 is perhaps a psalm that sounded familiar to you. Of course, we said it earlier in our confession of sin, but beyond that, it's a psalm that we see quoted in the book of Romans. It's oftentimes uh, used as an apologetic against atheism or unbelief in our age. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And as we look at our passage today, I think it's helpful to consider those things going on in our culture, the secularization of society in general. But we also have to remember that God's word wasn't written necessarily to the people out there, but to the people in here. This was a song that was sung in worship. Now, it states certain truths, but its applications are not merely external. As we think about the times in which we live, sometimes we like to think they're more extreme than times past. Indeed, there are things in our culture that are more extreme now than perhaps in more recent history. But the propensity towards unbelief, to deny that God is there or that he cares or that he is truly the God that the Bible proclaims to be, well, that dates back all the way to the garden. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's maybe a slightly waning movement called New Atheism. About 10 years ago or so, Richard Dawkins wrote some books. Peter Hitchens wrote some books. There was lots of atheist kind of celebrities going to college campuses. Uh, But if you listen to the way they talk about God, the way they talk about their atheism, it wasn't so much that they had come to some sort of rational conclusion. Indeed, they believed that they had good argumentation as to why God does or does not exist. But ultimately, there seemed to be this edge to the way they spoke that I think is what we see here in Psalm 14. Uh, Peter Hitchens said, I'm not really an atheist, I'm an anti-theist. That is, I don't believe that God exists, but I'm actually against the idea of God. He's not merely neutral, he's not merely uh, objective rationalist, he actually thinks the idea of God is problematic and poisonous to society. I don't remember who said it, but I have one commentator on this. So the new atheists say, there is no God, and I hate him. This is the cry of the people here that we see in verse 1. They may not be truly atheistic. They may have some sophisticated arguments as to why God may or may not exist. But at the heart of this proclamation is that they don't care. Like, there's no God. All we have is the stuff around us. I don't have to answer to anybody named God. Or as Nietzsche famously put it, in light of the Enlightenment, God is dead. He was merely an idea to help us cope with life until science in the Enlightenment has now filled in the gap. We no longer need the crutch. God is dead. There's a lot of reasons why somebody would make the confession that there is no God. I'm already kind of alluded to the idea that there's an emotional uh, backdrop to a lot of these atheistic understandings. They perhaps have been hurt by God's people in a church. Other people may have never been taught about God. There are others who find it much more convenient to live in a world in which there is no God who tells people what is right and wrong, what he requires of them, they would rather be, like Eve, a God unto themselves. As we hear this passage, there is no God, it immediately brings to mind the opening chapter to the book of Romans. I'll read for us verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteous needs, deeds, I'm sorry, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. 
so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Pretty harsh words about the state of humanity, about the state of those who refuse to believe. It is a proclamation that they are without excuse, that it is evident in all of creation. What are the things that are evident? God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. One of my favorite evangelists often uses this imagery of asking somebody, after showing them a painting, is there an artist? Of course, anybody in their right mind would say, of course. Well, how do you know that there is an artist? Well, the picture is evidence that an artist created it. This certainly was not a random splattering of a paint can in a garage. And perhaps maybe modern art looks more like that. But it is a self-evident truth when you see a work of art, when you see a home, when you see a building, that there was a painter, a builder, an architect, right? And so it is with God's creation. It cries out about God's glory, his power, his divine nature. This is the inexcusable evidence before all of creation. And yet we see the same words used here in Romans. We see in verse 1 of Psalm 14. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. It says that they knew God. They, they know that God exists. All God. Now they might not know much about him. But they decided not to honor him or to give thanks to him. A volitional choice in the sense that it's not only that they don't believe in God, it's that they hate him. Or that it's more convenient for him not to be around. Now this is the point in the sermon where you think, yeah, all those stupid people out there who don't believe. Or this one fool, it's a, it's a singular word, man. This one, this one guy is just, what a fool. Uh, one of the campus ministries I was part of in college, good or not, on April 1st every year, put National Atheists, Atheist Day, right? April Fool's Day, National Atheist Day. Not a charitable way to engage with atheists on campus. But it was coming back to this point. It's a wrong way to come to this text. Indeed, it's true that it's foolish for people to claim God doesn't exist. It is foolish for them to go about their deeds as if God doesn't exist, to not give thanks to him or honor him. But we see as verse 2 comes along that it's not merely about some small percentage of our population, even if it's growing. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. It's not merely one fool. We're all fools. 
It is all of humanity. We all lack understanding. None of us truly pursue God with our whole hearts. That's why we confess our sins each week coming here, because this is the problem of man. The Lord looking down from heaven, it reminds me back to the days of the flood. When he looked down, the thoughts of man's heart were only evil all the time, and the Lord regretted that he had ever made him. It's the same looking down judgment to make the assessment of what man truly is. Are there any who seek after God? We can become a bit jaded by that understanding that there aren't anybody who seeks after God, that we are all corrupted in a way that pushes us perhaps in the opposite direction. But there's certainly gospel hope and teaching that we need to take away from this verse. Jesus directly addresses this in the Gospels, John chapter 6. He knows that people aren't seeking after God. Those who are trying to seek God the most in their own strength at the time were Jesus' greatest enemies. They are the ones who handed him over to be crucified. What does Jesus say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Why does the Father need to draw people to the Son? Because left to ourselves, we would never even consider it. We are named among those who lack understanding, who don't seek after God. Verse 3, who have turned aside to together. All of humanity have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one, not even one. We like to create exceptions to the rules for ourselves, and there's no way we can pigeonhole ourselves into this verse to say, well, maybe it's not talking about me. We look beyond this indictment against humanity. We see a warning. Verse 4. Have they no knowledge? All evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Don't they understand what they're doing? Don't they know who they're dealing with? Harkens back to Romans chapter 1, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they've become fools. Do they have any knowledge? Do they even understand what game we're playing here? Do they realize what they are doing and who they are doing it to? Verse 5, they are in great terror. Now, interestingly, they probably don't feel like they're in great terror. Meet somebody who doesn't believe in God, and they will probably make some dismissive comments about this angry God, and, you know, who wants to believe in that? 
They don't feel this great terror. But the truth of the situation is that they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, we have to presume in this situation, David is seeing before him a great rise of evil, a great godless generation, and and a very small minority of those who are trying to remain faithful, who are trying to worship the Lord, who are seeking his righteousness. And there's this contrast being displayed for us. You would shame the plans of the poor, which is synonymous here with the righteous, but the Lord is his refuge. They've set themselves up against God, pretending he does not exist, not wanting him to exist, living as if there are no consequences. And David proclaims here to us that they don't know what they've got themselves into. The Lord is on the side, the poor, righteous person who is being oppressed. Romans chapter 3 is where we see this psalm quoted at, at length among some other verses. That get to the reality about man's depravity who we are in our unregenerated hearts and the vestiges of sin that remain in us. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are Jews any better off? As Paul is explaining how this all applies. No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He goes on to quote another psalm. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul goes on to explain the relevance of this for the people of God, thinking about the Jewish people under the law and their inheritance of the promises of God and now how that applies to them. The first thing Paul does is he lands on this truth, that this is where we all start. Now, we hold know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If we look at the law, if the Jews are viewing themselves under the law and they're going to get righteous with God by following the law, they will only come to a further understanding of their sin. But now, righteousness, how do we get true righteousness of God, has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This indictment against humanity, this indictment against those who are under the law, those who were created in God's image and have rebelled and become foolish in their thoughts and in their hearts, Paul tells us, shuts everyone's mouth. It takes away our excuses. It causes us to be on the same level. It is no longer those unbelieving Gentiles over there and us righteous Jews. Indeed, this is the human problem. This is the problem of Adam and all of his descendants. It's the doctrine we often call total depravity. It is the foundation for us understanding what the gospel truly is. If we want to understand how gloriously gracious and loving God is, we must begin to plunge the depths of how wicked and perverted we are in our hearts. How much it costs him to make things right. That it was so God could be just and the justifier. That the just punishment that those who are not righteous, who don't understand or seek after God, who have turned aside, who have become worthless, who don't do good, none of them. In order for the justice to come, Christ had to die. Indeed, he becomes the justifier. That as those who have faith in Christ, we can be justified. We can be received as as those who have been granted his righteousness. Righteousness apart from the law. Righteousness apart from our good works. Righteousness apart from anything good in us. Total depravity. God sees the sin in every aspect of how we act, how we think, how we feel. Yet he has made a way for each and every one of those sins to be forgiven. There is no hope in any aspect of our nature to find any righteousness, not even one. You see, this psalm, these indictments, they don't just apply to atheism. It would be a massive failure for us to just preach this sermon to make us feel better that we're not atheists. It applies to all unbelief. And we think, well, I don't know that I have a problem with unbelief. I just confessed my faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. I genuinely believe those things. Indeed, that's good. That places us in a different category. That places us in the ongoing work of God's Spirit, making us new. But perhaps a helpful question for us to consider as we look at this indictment, the fool who does these things, who says there's no God, how does that apply to me? Here's the question. What are the ways in which we think, the ways in which we live, that are actually a foolish confession that there's no God? God. 
Think about a child who thinks they can get away with doing something wrong. A criminal who goes and commits some act. What are, what are they really confessing in that by their actions? My parents won't know. The police won't catch me, or I can do whatever I want. Is that not why we do the things we do that go against God's will? Is that not at the heart of sin? The things we do are confessions that we believe that God doesn't really see it. God doesn't really care about it. We'd be let off the hook. You see, the sin of unbelief is perpetual in our hearts. It is at the root of why we sin. Indeed, Romans chapter 1 talks about how their foolish hearts are darkened and by God's grace, he has placed us into his place of favor. He's renewing our hearts, shining his light upon it. But in each one of our hearts remains the hope that God's not really there and I can do whatever I want. And that is the most pernicious sin that we can deal with. It is the most vile sin that we can possibly have. We've talked about this many times. What is the worst thing somebody can do? We often make a list. Right? We even have a whole criminal code of the most you know, types of felonies and misdemeanors and right, all of these things. And we think, yes, murder is the worst. Mass murder is the worst. Whatever we want to put on the top of the list. What God puts on the top of the list is unbelief. And it's a universal problem. It is a problem that we must seek God's mercy and grace for each and every day. We are not without hope, as we said before. Indeed, we would not seek after God in our own strength, but the Father has drawn us. We have been born again by the power of his Spirit to a, a living hope not merely on some sort of treadmill hoping and pying time until we see the end of the age, but progressive holiness being worked in us. God's revelation to our hearts and our minds becoming more and more real to us each day. May we not take a posture of thinking ourselves better than anybody else. May we see the unbelief in our own hearts and, and read these words about mankind and, and may it cause us to turn to God and say, help. Lord, I am corrupt. I have done abominable deeds. I don't do the good I should do. I need your wisdom and understanding. Help me to seek after you. That is the difference between the fool whose heart has been hardened and the fool who has been deemed righteous in Jesus Christ. May we not act foolish when we are confronted with our unbelief and sin. May we turn to him as we see at the end of this psalm. The Lord is the refuge for the poor. That salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, God's anointed hill. 
And that when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, when the unbelief of our age and the wickedness of our world is washed away, let us rejoice. Let us sing God's praises. Let us make him God instead of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have taken us from darkness and into light, that you have changed our unbelief into belief. But Lord, we need your help to continue. We need your help to change our minds and our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would draw us ever closer to your son. Lord, we pray that you would renew our minds. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. That we might live for your honor and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.